Our guest today is David Goldblatt, a fantastic sociologist, journalist and author whose work focuses on my favourite topic, football. I know David as a former lecturer at Pitzer College in California and I think he's best described as a professor of football. Today, I'm going to view David as my own personal football encyclopedia. Now David, I can remember you describing at the beginning of our lectures in California that this is not really about analysing Messi's greatest volleys. It's about understanding the sociological, economic and political undercurrents of football. Would that be a good way to describe the work that you do? I would describe myself, yeah, as a sociologist and historian of football. And football is the most popular, popular cultural phenomenon in the world, which is in a way completely extraordinary, but I think is really indisputable. So I think anybody who's interested in really any aspect of contemporary society probably wants to be taking a look at football somewhere along the line. I mean, no, you know, no event um, comes anywhere close to the World Cup for generating global audiences uh, and a sense of kind of cultural interconnectivity. I mean, the Olympics is like a shadow by comparison uh, and no artistic or musical or literary or televisual event is anywhere close. Um, and the scale of the football industry these days uh, and as a sort of cultural phenomena is such that one's not even looking for reflections or, um, you know, football as a mirror image or, or as a lens because it's actually in and of itself a gigantic social institution. I mean, the European football industry is turning over something in the order of $30 billion a year. It's bigger than the European publishing industry, quite a lot bigger than the European publishing industry. What would the statistics be in terms of viewing figures of anything televised worldwide or the World Cup or maybe compared to something like the Super Bowl? Sure. So... I mean, the data is all a little, it's a bit ropey. And, you know, how much time people are actually watching the thing and what is the calibre of the viewing and so on. But, you know, FIFA's data is saying that, you know, a couple of billion people are watching the World Cup final and more than half the planet has watched some of the World Cup. And when you sort of take out, okay, all the folks who haven't got television... And like everybody under seven, um, suddenly that's actually a very big percentage of the world. Uh, and the Olympics doesn't come anywhere close. The Super Bowl is like 120 million people watching it. I mean, I find the comparison of the Super Bowl to the World Cup is just is just laughable. Yeah. I mean, sure, it's a huge thing in the United States. I get it, and it has its kind of international connoisseurs. But the idea that it comes anywhere close to uh, to the World Cup is sort of, is just a silly argument. Increasingly what I find myself doing when you study football is you really are studying global politics. The extent to which um, political parties, um, uh, individual politicians, states, state institutions have become enmeshed in football. Um, is just extraordinary. I mean, of course, this has always been the case. You know, Mussolini held the 1934 Olympics. Um, 
the 19 sorry the 1934 world cup the 1978 world cup you know was the hunters in argentina but you know today we have a situation where three you know of the largest clubs in you know european football are actually owned by gulf states you know saudi arabia's uh sovereign fund owns newcastle united uh the uae owns manchester city and qatar owns psg um, the Chinese government, you know, five years ago, the Central Committee, you know, made uh, progress in football and achieving Xi Jinping's three wishes that China should uh, qualify for the World Cup, host it and win it by 2050. They made these official markers of social and economic development in China. Uh, and in, off the back of that, a kind of huge array, a huge array of policies have been put in place to try and change China's football culture so this is like yeah I think when I started writing about this I was more on the look what football shows you about the economy or what football shows you about politics but increasingly I'm just showing you this is the economy this is politics with um I mean there's about a million points I'd be interested to jump in on there um but I just wanted to drill down on particularly the Premier League where, as you mentioned, you have nation states um, often in the Middle East owning football clubs and you often have oligarchs, um, Russian oligarchs owning Premier League football clubs as well. What's in it for them? Because obviously football, as you've said before, it's not really a very profitable industry. And clubs often hold their value quite well, but are they using it for political control or for oligarchs? They're trying to make a name for themselves so they're not a target of the Russian state. Why, why are they doing this? Well, all of these things, I mean, you know, different things are going on for different people. I think there are a few rich folks, mainly Americans, who are still under the delusion that somehow they can make some money um, or somehow this uh, industry will eventually become profitable when, in fact, the Premier League, you know, continues overall and after tax and depreciation to lose money. Um I think there are a certain amount of, you know, rich men's toys, and it is obviously overwhelmingly men. I mean, Stan Kroenke, you know, that's uh, the owner of Arsenal, inheritor of a good chunk of the Walmart fortune. I don't think he's really in it for the politics. Um, You know, he likes to run slightly mediocre, middling sports clubs, as he does in the US, and not really put any money into them. Um, Okay, so that's his rich man's game. Um, Abramovich, you know, who is the Russian oligarch in this conversation, though, you know, you've got the Uzbek guy uh, who owned a bit of Arsenal and um, Maxime Denim, who owns uh, Bournemouth. Um, I mean, my my interpretation of Abramovich is that it's an exit strategy. You know, what Chelsea allowed him to do was to move out of the sphere of Russia with his money and his life and his family intact and establish himself outside of Russia. Uh, I mean, I think he has fun. I think he's also a slightly rich man's toy as well. Um, but I think that's been the key feature of purchasing. Uh, because, the, you know, you, the coverage is huge. Once you own a Premier League club, the world now knows about you. Um, with the UAE... And Manchester City, that's much more, this is clearly a much more political strategy. This is about getting yourself, your state, different state organs, the brand out in the world. 
And, you know, City is actually one of only nine clubs owned by the Manchester City group. You know, they also own clubs in the United States uh, and in Japan. And that's, again, it, it's, a, it's, it's a broader political and footballing strategy. Um, and, you know, the UAE and Qatar have both gone down this line. I mean, partly it's also a sort of domestic economic issue in that these societies are thinking, okay, so what, what do we do when the oil and the gas runs out? Well, we have to stop taking it out the ground. You know, what are we going to survive on? Well, you know, we could survive on being, you know, a global hub of finance, services, entertainment, tourism. And so sport, you know, drops into that portfolio um, very well. And, you know, both Qatar, Qatar in particular, you know, has made sort of huge strides in that department. The scale of sort of sports sponsorship and hosting of events is huge beyond just the 2022 World Cup. Saudi Arabia is late to the game. I mean, they, you know, they're playing catch up. And I think here, you know, we are in part talking about um, the politics of envy amongst Gulf monarchies. And the Saudis are not used to being you know, the last ones in, not being the leading force, but obviously the largest, most powerful state on the peninsula. And I think they finally turned around and got, you know, these guys have got PSG, you know, the UAE has got Man City. How the hell have we not got something? So I think that is what is, um, you know, that's what's driving it. Uh, that's what's driving it there. So I think it's a mix. You know, there are also... You know, there was a whole series of purchases of um, clubs by Chinese business people. Um, partly that was, um, again, the certain amount of rich man's toy. But the politics there are more the politics of managing upwards, which is what business people in China, you know, have to do a lot of the time. What does the state, what does the government, what does the Communist Party want? Because it'd be a really good idea to doing that for us for running our business. And I think when Xi Jinping and the Central Committee published their big football plan, it was like, OK, this is the sign. Get out there. Get out there and, you know, engage in world football. I mean, I think it's also good for business back home to a certain extent. You know, uh, the coverage of the uh, Premier League in China is huge. So I think there's a mixture of things. There's a mixture of things going on there. Um, particularly with Saudi Arabia, do you think it's more um, that catch-up game with their rivals, or do you think it's more a sports-washing case? Um, well, they're catching up in the sports-washing. Right. Yes, sure. I mean, they're, they're doing it because they want people to feel, you know, more warm towards Saudi Arabia and think about it in terms other than, you know, bone sores um, uh, and a plethora of other you know, human rights abuses and so on that people in the West certainly find problematic. So, of course, that's, you know, that's why they're doing it. But it's, you know, why has it happened, you know, at this moment? Um, you know, uh, the, um, yeah, there's a certain kind of level of envy. And I think they've also looked, you know, at Qatar and the UAE and gone, this works. You know, Qatar, Qatar's position in the world has been transformed by its football investments. You know, everybody knows, now knows where Qatar is, a tiny little peninsula on the bottom of Saudi Arabia. And um, who knew the hell where Qatar was 10 years ago? And now everybody does. And for a small state that, you know, you need coverage and you need friends in the world. You need everybody to know about you. 
That's, you know, your root security. So the Qataris, I think, have done incredibly well. And I think the Saudis are saying, okay, so what can we, you know, how can we use the, the power of this thing for our own ends? It, it's interesting to hear you say that it seems to be mostly about status and publicity um, around the world rather than di directly influencing high-level politicians. And I wonder if their minds will be changed by this or whether it's, it will just be a structural thing. In 20, 30 years' time, people will have grown up knowing about Saudi Arabia. Yeah, I mean, you know, there are other ways of influencing politicians. Nobody's conducting their kind of cultural diplomacy just with one instrument um, and you know there are ways of uh, influencing and shaping politicians and decision makers and journalists and then if you want wider coverage there's football um, though you know increasingly around the world you know politicians are engaged with football like to be seen close to football you know and have to kind of take note of it so I think there's um, there's a bit of both of those. You know, you, football allows you to appeal to a lot of constituencies. And certainly, you know, at a local level, I mean, Manchester City, uh, the UAE's ownership of Manchester City has led to a lot of um, connections with and influence over Manchester City Council. Really? Um, yeah, I mean, you know, the UAE is investing in all sorts of development programmes in East Manchester, doing deals with the council over a whole bunch of stuff. Yeah, no, you have a lot of leverage. When you're an institution that big and you have a lot of money, you're going to have a lot of influence locally. You're going to have to be... Uh, and they have, their, they have their purposes. I'm just going to... Um, I'm conscious with we haven't got that long um so i just there's one thing that i'm fascinated to get your opinion on every game um every premier league game i don't know how long it's going to go on for now but people take the knee before the game for black lives matter so sure. when i'm at arsenal most weeks um round of applause there was silence for a while now it's kind of round of applause i went to burnley away it's just comfortably booze um, I mean, it was followed by some clapping from the Arsenal end. Um, what do you think is going on there? How long do you think taking the knee will last? And why do people hate it so much? And why is it, I'm assuming you think it's a good thing. Why do you think taking the knee is a good thing? Um, lots of questions. Um, I mean, I think it's probably instructive to look at what happened during Euro 2020 and the England team. That's a sort of dramatisation of the wider issue. So I think that's where really taking the knee first encountered large crowds because Premier League players were taking the knee during 2020-2021 post uh, George Floyd, um, but no one's in the stadium. So it's only when you start getting people in the stadium that it begins to have that impact. In Euro 2020, that was super dramatised. So I think the first thing to say is that for the players, it's not actually about Black Lives Matter. It's a statement, they say, of, you know, anti-racism. You know, I mean, Black Lives Matter is um, obviously part of, you know, a wider and broader social movement and a moment that was really important. But the players are not explicitly supporting the Black Lives Matter movement, is my interpretation. Some of them do, some of them don't. But I think... 
the conversation that was had amongst the amongst players was that this is about saying no to racism. Um, that, you know, unacceptable and, you know, solidarity with those who are experiencing it. Um, I think that there is a part of the England football crowd um, uh, and a, the same lot at Burnley, but who make a bigger bit of the Burnley crowd, you know, who um, can't bear being told um, that their racist attitudes are racist. That's what's going on. And it's like, how the fuck can people think that, you know, um, the very, very ethnically diverse body of um, footballers in this country, who we know experience every day of their lives, many of them, a variety of forms of racism and have done for the last 40 years, that they don't know what they're doing. And these fuckers in the stands are trying to say, oh, you're supporting a Marxist Black Lives Matter movement and we'll decide what is an acceptable protest against racism. It's like, fuck you. Fuck you, lot. Um, and, you know, as we know, Priti Patel, the Home Secretary, and Johnson tried to, you know, with dog whistle tactics, give their implicit support for these people to boo an anti-racist gesture. And um, it's a struggle. Then it turns into a fight. No, it's like they're racist and they're anti-racist and people disagree. It's not like there's a kind of unity out there, but that's England. That's where we are as a country. Um, and I thought it was interesting. I think the players won at Euro 2020. They absolutely, they won it in terms of just carrying on doing it. Um, in the social media war, they absolutely destroyed um, Patel and Johnson. Um, and in the end, you know, the silent majority started clapping, which is what you're seeing at Arsenal. And indeed, you saw it during Euro 2020. And initially, it was a bit of a contest. And then the claps got louder. Um, and that's the struggle. You know, that, that's I mean, that's the incredible thing about football is to so theatrically demonstrate one element of the kind of politics of ethnicity and race in this country is that people of colour are saying, this country is fucking structurally racist and we've absolutely had a fucking enough of this. And then there's a certain group of white people, many of whom are the people who are most active in perpetrating and reproducing this, saying, no, we'll tell you what's an acceptable place to talk about racism and whether it's racist or not. And they're not having it. Players are not having it. And a lot of other people are not having it. I mean, at Burnley, you know, you've got more people who take the first position is what I would say. I mean, you know, Burnley's got past form as well, you know, for inter interaction between football fans and the far right. And certainly during the um, uh, Lancashire um, race riots in the early 2000s, where you had stuff going on in Burnley and Oldham between uh, ethnically based um, gangs and groups, football fans uh, from many football clubs in the region were definitely involved so there's a whole long tradition going a long way back uh there um and you know they were flying all white all lives matter banner didn't they at burnley like um when it all first started and there were still no players somebody paid to fly a banner over it um so yeah you know i mean and white people a lot of white people you know want to claim that football's our space we can speak how we like in it and um now there's a lot of people of colour and their allies who are saying, nope, I'm not having it.
the repost that um i've heard most is that you're politicizing something that should be pure um my understanding would be that um well, if... i mean what, what i would say is what you say you're saying that people who are saying racism is unacceptable are political but the people who were booing them and saying racism is totally acceptable and we'll decide who can be racist and not political it's like this is nursery school fucking bullshit what the fuck for sure pardon my language but it's like politicizing what the hell what the hell what, what, what does that mean it should be pure what there shouldn't be racism no but the problem is there are lots of racists and lots of structurally racist institutions you know and 500 years of history embedding them and like what some <laughs> suddenly like that's going to be dealt with by purity and you know it's expressed all the time in football Football is the most public space in which racist sentiments are being expressed in this country. We all see it all the time. Raheem Sterling at Chelsea. Like, hello? Like, it's absolutely there. So I just sort of wonder, what do people mean by you're politicising it? Like, there's a non-political way of dealing with the inequality of power between people of different ethnicities. I also think that if you don't make it political, then you reinforce the existing political structures, which don't need to make a statement. Yeah. Just by the status quo is political, I'd say. Well, the status quo, you know, in English football has been very, very unequal. And, you know, it's been the most terrible racism that's been expressed with that. You know, I mean, both in terms of how crowds have treated players but you know racism runs so much more deeply like where are all the black managers where are all the black owners where are the black journalists where are the people of color running television companies you know etc 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 i mean indeed look at the crowds and arsenal i mean i would say arsenal's kind of one of the more diverse crowds in this country but you know we've got a game where 25 percent of players minimum you know from this country are players of color and what the crowd i mean there's no way it's 25 percent. it's like i'd say tottenham and arsenal seven ten maybe i don't know like leicester leicester a bit more leicester special um so yeah there's a lot of this goes this runs right through the game i would say i've got two final questions um just because i'm conscious of time sure. one is you mentioned black football managers yeah um, I find it really interesting because with um, lots of other realms, let's say, I don't know, being a lawyer, um, there's lots of institutional barriers that you can remove to make um, the institution more accessible to people from black and ethnic minority backgrounds. Whereas football managers, it seems like there's a pretty equal pool of players who are pretty diverse. And what's happening that there's you have such a diverse group of players and then all of a sudden all the managers are white where's what's happening Tiny number of people making the decisions who are not accountable to anybody who are making the decisions on the basis of you know it's all it's so much in football at that level it's gonna it's about trust and feel who looks like me who do i trust do you know what i mean i think there's a lot of that and that is really difficult you can't, that's not an institutional, there's not like kind of like a practice that makes sure, makes that reproduces that. But, you know, when you think about who are the people who are making decisions of basically rich white men, 
You know, it's a really undiverse group of people who are making the decision and they're making it on the basis really not of like, I don't think there's too much ticking of criteria as people go along. It's like feel. There's a lot of feel. And who do you want and who do you feel okay with and who do you trust? And at that level, you know, all of the unspoken biases, you know, what does a manager look like? They look like Brian Clough. They look like, you know, they look like Frank Lampard. They look like Stephen Gerrard. But some of them don't look like Sol Campbell. Like, mm, what's going on there? I mean, it is extraordinary. You know, Sol Campbell was, you know, captain of England, captain of Tottenham, captain of Arsenal. You know, an absolute giant. And clearly, um, a very smart and thoughtful man. No doubt about that, you know, compared to like most footballers. And it's taken him, it took him 10 years, you know, to get a bad job in football. And, you know, Lampard and Gerard just like walk in. And I, I cannot see that's because they're so much obviously superior, you know, material for coaching. It just seems to me something else has to be going on. I think the, the attitude of football um, is often, um, oh, I don't care if you're black, blue, green or yellow. I just see football. But then at some point your implicit biases come in and it's not an overt thing. You don't. I just never believe that when people say that. I just don't believe it. I mean, no, not saying it's just sort of assumes that racism, some sort of very crude, it just works by someone's black. That's a problem. It's like there are so many cues and contexts and ways in which people's perception is shaped before you come to the table. So it doesn't matter, you know, I just don't buy, I just never buy that. And if that were the case, you know, like, then there would definitely be more black managers. If that was the norm, you know, there would be more black managers. But, you know, when you're 25% of the labour pool, you know, producing 2% of the coaching staff, I think something, something else must be going on. It's not just, like, it's not a random fall of the dice, is it? Um, my final question is kind of related to ethnicity. Um, so... Your name is David Goldblatt, very obviously Jewish name. Sure. Um, I'm also Jewish. And you're a Tottenham fan and I'm an Arsenal fan. We've both heard the word Yid a lot, I assume, used at football. Sure. I'm interested to find out what you think about that. When I've heard it, it's always been slightly more derogatory because it's being said by Arsenal fans to Spurs fans. Whereas, mm. do you feel that... As Spurs fans, the word "yid" is slightly more celebratory, and do you think it's offensive? Basically, I personally don't find it offensive. My family would use it when I was a kid to refer to ourselves, or "front wheel" was the rhyming slang. "Front wheel skid yid," um, and there's a sort of certain level, I think, of reappropriation going on there. However, I don't think the issue really is whether I feel offensive. I think a lot of Jewish football fans do find it offensive. I'm thinking, you know, I've, David Baddiel's written a lot on this. Um, and I think that just has to be, you can't tell people, well, it's not offensive. If that's how they're experiencing it, that's how they're experiencing it. And I think when the issue first really surfaced, let's say 10 years ago, um, as like, this is a problem, I was inclined to say, you know, Actually, I think it's cool to reclaim the term. 
I do feel a bit weird about it in the sense that actually most of the people seeing this are not Jews. Um, uh, you know, Tottenham, I mean, Arsenal is certainly as Jewish a club in that regard as Tottenham, if not more. Um, what has made me feel much less comfortable about it is the persistence of anti-Semitic tropes of other kinds in football. Uh, the Zyklon B gas hissing. So I always think that I hear that by Arsenal fans. I can never quite be certain. I'm sure they were just hissing at the end of that We Hate Tottenham song. Yeah, I and that, in the context of a sort of wider renaissance of anti-Semitism uh, amongst the uh, deluded conspiracy theorists and far-right nutters of the world, um, makes me feel very much less comfortable about it. Um, so I wouldn't say I'd come to a sort of final decision, but I'm absolutely, I'm finding it less and less acceptable as time goes on. Yeah, maybe that's a reflection of wider culture and different exactly. things. Exactly. I mean, I think, you know, these things are contextual. You know, these things are contextual. If we were all just sort of reclaiming an ancient hurt in the context of, you know, good inter-ethnic relationships, in a mature society, I wouldn't feel so, you know, that would be one thing, but I'm not actually sure that, I don't think that's where we are right now in English football or indeed in England. 